That is calling our Lord Jesus a deceiver, a liar, a sinner, and in which case he can in no way be the Savior of the world. Look, I'm going to go with the plain meaning of Scripture. I'm going to go with what Jesus said, and he linked his resurrection to the miracle of Jonah. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We have just completed our series in the book of Romans, and today we finish our first part of a new series of messages in the book of Jonah. In this series, Pastor Carl is examining both the historicity and the relevance of this great book. If Jesus viewed Jonah as a historical figure who was literally in the belly of a great fish, then we should as well. When the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of good things which you did not fill, and you cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. And that's exactly what happened in Israel's history. God blessed this King Jeroboam. He expanded their borders. They were number one. But he didn't repent. God blessed America. I'm not saying that we're a nation without problems. But God blessed this nation like few nations in the history of man. More missionaries have been sent from the United States of America than any other single nation in the history of man. And if you're God Almighty and you want to get the best news of your son out to the world, you're going to bless a nation that's going to take that seriously. And in the early days, America was a difficult place to live. And the people cried out for survival and God answered and blessed him. And now we're a nation of abundance. And so we've gone from approximately 80% of Americans gathering on the Lord's day to 20%. Why? Because we've forgotten God. Yes, we have a president who's religious, who goes to mass every week, who put his hand on God's holy war word and swore to defend this nation. And yet he who acknowledges God as the same president who is in favor of abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism and like so many other politicians, all kinds of wickedness because we have forgotten the living God. So here's a real historical person. His name is Jonah, the son of Amity. He is from a place called Gath-Hefer. Gath-Hefer is three miles from Nazareth. You know Nazareth, the place where Jesus was brought to shortly after his birth and was raised there and preached there. Well, he's preaching this prophet. He was raised in the same neighborhood. So he's talking about a real person who ministered to real people, 
to a real king who's from a real city called Gath Affair. So you really have to stretch and twist and ignore the divine inspiration of Scripture and to say that the Bible's lying to say that this man was not a real historical person. In fact, 2 Kings reminds us that because of their disobedience, what does God later do? He rises up a couple more prophets to take the message that Jonah gave, like the prophet Hosea. We call it the book of endless love. And God basically says, how dare you? How dare you take my love and my kindness and ignore me? And then he raises up another prophet. His name is Amos. And his message is very simple. You rebel against the dictates of God Almighty, and I am going to judge you through the Assyrians. Now, keep that in mind, because we're going to see that's very important as we work through the book of Jonah. And so we learn the historical nature of this man. He's a prophet. His name is Jonah. He is the son of Amity. He is from the city of Gathafair. He preaches to a real king. He's a historical person. There's no other way to take him. Now, there's a second reason why the book of Jonah bears the stamp of historicity. And again, it's the fact that those closest to the writing understood it that way. The church fathers and again, those Jewish commentators. That's how they understand it. But let me tell you why people don't want to accept it as history. It's because of the miraculous nature of this book. You read the book of Jonah. It's only 48 verses. You could read it in a short time. There's like more miracles per square inch than in few verses, in few books in all of the Bible. I mean, think about it. Here in the opening chapter, God hurls a great wind on the sea, Jonah 1.4. Then after the sailors are on board and they're casting lots, who's responsible for this in the providence of God, where does the lot fall to out of all the men on that ship? To Jonah. Then Jonah is cast into the sea, and instantly the sea stops its raging, another miracle. And just about the time he's ready to drown, God sends one of his great submarines, and he, he, he takes his prophet, and for three days and three nights, he's not eaten up by the gastric juices of this huge animal, but he's preserved. God commands the fish to spit Jonah out on dry land. He preaches the shortest sermon recorded just about anywhere in the Bible. And what happens? The greatest revival in history takes place. If you remember, after they repent, he's, God sends this scorching hot wind, and, and he's kind of moaning and groaning, and then God supernaturally makes this plant, comes up overnight and gives him some shade, and he's enamored with the plant because God's going to teach him some important lessons, so he sends a worm to eat the plant, and the plant dies, and he's moaning and groaning, and he begs that it would be better to die than to live. I mean, miracle after miracle, God's fingerprints are all the way through this inspired book. By the way, the, the problem that many have today with the historicity of Jonah is the exact same problem that Christ encountered. You can read about it in the Gospels. Um, let me read to you an occasion. Uh, it's at the end of Christ's public ministry. He'd already cleansed the temple um, he confronts the, uh, after his triumphal entry, the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, and, and they're ticked because of what he did in the temple and all these miracles he's performing. 
and they asked this question, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? In other words, you didn't get the authority from us, so it can't be the real thing. And so Jesus responded to their question with a question, I'll tell you by what authority if you first answer my question. He says the baptism of John was from what source, from heaven or from men? And so they get in their little holy huddle and they begin to confer and and they're on really the horns of a dilemma. They began reasoning among themselves saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why didn't you believe believe him? Why didn't you respond to his ministry? But if we say from men, we fear the people for they regard John as a prophet. And so they, they come out of their little conference and they answer Jesus and they say, we don't know. I can hear some guys on the sidelines, man, I'm paying your salary. I just gave my tithe. Here's the most significant person who's shown up in 400 years, and you don't know? What are we paying you for? So Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. You see, the problem was not with knowledge. They could not deny the miracles of the Messiah. They couldn't deny the authority with which Christ taught in this final week where the people were moved and just like, wow, there's no one like this. They couldn't deny that. Their problem was not with knowledge. It was an issue of the heart. It was an issue of the will. And if a person will not embrace God's word, then they will reject God's word. There's no such thing as neutrality. You're either for God or you're not. And unless you embrace the supernatural nature of God's word, then you'll reject it. Why do men reject it? Why did these men reject it? Because they were self-righteous. See, the very message that Jesus preached was that you cannot save yourself, that it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick, that I didn't come to save the righteous. They came to call sinners to repentance. They didn't like that message. They sought, Paul said, to establish a righteousness of their own, rejecting the righteousness that God gifts to people through grace. And so in their self-righteousness, they rejected Jesus. Some people reject him for moral reasons. You mean you literally interpret the Bible? Well, yeah, I I take the plain grammatical historical interpretation of the Bible. You literally interpret? Yeah, yeah, I do. You know what they're really saying? They're saying, I don't like the way you interpret the Scripture because you are saying that my abortion, my premarital sex, my extramarital sex, my homosexuality, or whatever, whatever it may be, is wrong. And people don't like that. So people will either reject it in their self-righteousness or they will reject it in their immorality. Now, there's a third reason why I accept the book of Jonah, and I suppose it's the clenching argument as history. It's because that's what Jesus believed. Hold your finger here and turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, if you're new to the Bible, it's the very first book in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew chapter 12. And uh, it's an important uh, section of Scripture because it was the occasion, and we'll come back to it later, I hope, in our study of Jonah. It's an important section of Scripture because Jesus is confronting the scribes and the Pharisees uh, over some miracles that he had done, and they said they couldn't deny the miracles. He had just done a triple miracle, so they denied the source of the miracle. 
And they said, well, what's being done isn't being pulled off by God Almighty. It's being pulled off by the devil. And of course, if you know this section, he deals with the sin called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so we read here in Matthew 12, um, verse 38, then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He just did a triple miracle. We want to see a sign from you. And why do they want to see a sign? Just to have another reason to reject him. So he answered them, verse 39, an evil An adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it, but, he said, the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, it's not always wrong to have a sign in the sense that uh, God gave signs and miracles to confirm the messenger. The messenger was confirmed by the miracles. Not everyone did miracles in Scripture, only a handful of people at certain segments of time. Uh, Moses and Joshua did the first cluster of miracles. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they never did miracles. Hundreds of years went by. No one did a miracle until Elijah and Elisha come on the scene. Hundreds of years go by. A few people have miracles done to them, like Daniel, like Jonah. But no one does a miracle until Christ and the apostles come. And after they die, those miracles end up stopping through men. God can still do a miracle today, but through men, no. He did it only in the great changes of biblical history, and the next cluster is still in the future. He'll do it during the time of the great tribulation period. So it's not always wrong to see a miracle because God will often confirm the messenger through the miracle. Gideon, he was already a man of faith. He was going into war, but he wanted a confirmation, a sign from God in order to know that God was going with him. Well, these scribes and Pharisees, they had had all the miracles they needed. If they had just read the Scripture and see some of those unique miracles that Messiah alone would do, they should have been convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. But they didn't like his authority over their life. And so he says what they are doing, as Luke says, only an evil generation does. Yet no sign shall be given to you but the sign of Jonah the prophet. He calls them an evil porneros in an adulterous generation. He's describing their evil towards man, their adultery towards God. God will often use sexual sin to compare man's unfaithfulness. In the Old Testament, God is married to the people of Israel. In the New Testament, Christ, so to speak, is married to the church. And so when we are unfaithful to the Lord, we have committed spiritual adultery. So he says, no sign will be given to you, yet the sign of Jonah. 4 verse 40, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Furthermore, Luke shed some additional light. Let me read Luke eleven twenty nine and 30. This generation, he said, is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. And so Jesus makes a parallel between the sign that Jonah was to the Ninevites to his own resurrection. And it's not by accident. Jesus doesn't say, well, just as like the allegory Jonah was. No. The Ninevites believed that what happened to Jonah actually happened. That's why he had their attention. And Jesus likens that literal historical fact to his own resurrection. And so furthermore, he says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because they, pre- they repented of the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. 
Now, please note, Jesus regarded the repentance of the Ninevites, this generation of Ninevites. There's a later generation, 100 years later, he sends another prophet, Nahum. In this generation, they have kids and grandkids, and the generations that follow repent of their parents' repentance. But this particular generation of Ninevites will be able to stand up in the judgment And by their response to the revelation that God brought through Jonah, it will condemn these unbelieving Jews. I mean, if the Ninevites could have repented with the limited knowledge that they had, how much more should have these Jewish people in Jesus' day have repented? If that were not enough, he adds, the queen of the south, verse 42, shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Beyond the response of the Ninevites, there's the queen of Sheba, the queen of the south. She heard about Solomon and his wisdom and how God had blessed him like no other king in history to date. She comes from the ends of the earth, a Hebraism to describe about as far as anyone could travel in the first century, uh, excuse me, in the, in the ninth century BC, uh, from the ends of the earth, about 1,200 miles, and she comes to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And yet Jesus, he is the embodiment of wisdom. He is God in human flesh. And if she could respond to Solomon, they certainly should have responded to the message and the wisdom that the Lord Jesus brought. And so here in the opening verse of Jonah 1.1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Now, I spent a lot of time on this background because I want you to understand that this man was a real person with a real genealogy with real things that happened to his life. How are we going to apply it? Let me make three suggestions as we close. Number one, a rejection of the historicity of Jonah is a rejection of Jesus. When I came to Community Bible Church some 30 years ago, there was a pastor in a Southern Baptist church who was moving his church to Cooperative Baptist. Whenever you see Cooperative Baptist, you ought to raise red flag in your mind because Cecil Sherman, their founder, started on the premise that the Bible is not authoritative, that it's not inerrant. Now, you can read the doctrinal statements of some churches in town that are cooperative Baptists. We believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. They've added that because I've preached too much against cooperative Baptists. They use the same words but a different dictionary. They don't mean what Jesus meant by verbal plenary inerrancy. So here is this Southern Baptist pastor who ruined a lot of churches in our county because after he retired, he went from church to church to church and was interim pastor and destroyed all these churches, led them into the road of liberalism. I'd hate to meet God being an agent of the devil, getting people to question the authority of God's word. So he taught a course at USCB, and a number of our enlisted guys would go there and take a course working on a degree, and they'd come back, and some of them said, oh, a course in religion, I can get credit for it. This might be interesting. I get to study the Bible, and they'd come back week after week, and he denies the historicity of Genesis 1 through 11. He said that Jonah was not a real person, that that's just a parable to teach us a spiritual lesson. How did they get around all the things that we've studied? I'll tell you how he did it, and it's a common way liberals do. They would say, well, we can't deny that Jesus 
represented Jonah as a real historical person, but he was just accommodating himself to the common beliefs of the day. It's called the accommodation theory. So since uh, the Jewish people in my day believe that God literally created the world, since the Jewish people in my day believe that there was a real man by the name of Noah who built an ark, since the Jewish people in my day believe that there was a real man named Jonah who was swallowed by a great fish, rather than confuse them, I'll just accommodate myself to a myth that they embrace. That is blasphemous. I have commentaries in my library that that's literally what they say. That is calling our Lord Jesus a deceiver, a liar, a sinner, and in which case he can in no way be the Savior of the world. Look, I'm going to go with the plain meaning of Scripture. I'm going to go with what Jesus said, and he linked his resurrection to the miracle of Jonah. Secondly, a rejection of the historicity of Jonah is an indication of a hard heart. It's an indication of a hard heart. Now, people who reject what God has recorded in Scripture, the Word of God which is alive and living and sharper than a two-edged sword, they're nothing but people with a hard heart. Do you remember the, um, the rich man and a parable that Jesus described? Some say it's not a parable. In either case, it, it doesn't change its meaning. Uh, if it is a parable, it's a unique parable and that there are names given. But whether a parable or not, um, the truth is there, every single word of it. But this rich man dies and he goes to hell, to Hades. That's where lost people go today. In the Old Testament, it was called Sheol, and there were two compartments. There was righteous Sheol, Abraham's bosom. There was unrighteous Sheol. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he emptied out, the Scripture teaches, righteous Sheol. And so now, absent from the body, they are immediately present with the Lord. But unrighteous Sheol, Hades, still continues. That's where lost people go when they die. And someday God will take Hades, and it will continue in a place called the Lake of Fire. So this man dies, and he's in Hades, and he asks for a sign. He said, I beg you, Father, speaking of Abraham, that you send to my father's, that you send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that they may warn them so that they will not come to this place of torment. So Christ speaks of this rich man who dies. He dies and goes to hell, not because he's rich, but because he's an unbeliever. And he reminds us, and it's one aspect of hell, that in hell you have memory. There may be someone listening to me today and you haven't received Christ. If you die that way, you will remember the sermon. You will remember a warning that a pastor gave you on this day in December. This man remembered his memory wasn't foggy. It was clear. I've got five brothers, and I certainly don't want them to come to this place. Give them a sign. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They have the Torah, Moses. They have the rest of the Bible, the Nephilim. They've got the Old Testament. That's all they need. Let them hear them. No, 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 Father Abraham. If someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You see, if a man will not believe what God has plainly said, it just shows he has a hard heart. Listen, the Word of God is like any, different from any other book. It's alive, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. I know that every time I open the Scripture, either with believers or unbelievers, that there is a power to God's Word that no other book has. Even if the unbeliever says, I don't believe the Bible, he does. 
because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. He knows it to be true. And his point is, is listen, if, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they listen if someone rises from the dead. And a short throw later, there's a man by the name of Lazarus who's dead for four days, and Jesus brings him up from the grave. No one can deny it, so what do they want to do? They want to get rid of the evidence. They want to kill Lazarus. And not only do they want to kill Lazarus, the Bible says they want to kill the Lord Jesus who did the miracle. So it is only an evil and an adulterous relationship. We, we, we think, well, the sign from heaven, some miracle is the clincher. Not always. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. One final application, a rejection of the historicity of Jonah can result in eternal damnation. Now, we don't have time to study it today, and it deserves a sermon in itself, but God willing, we're coming back to it. But there's a parable of the homeless demon that Jesus continued when he spoke to this sin, blasphemy of the spirit. Let me read it to you. Now, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. This is the way it will be with this evil generation. Again, the parable is a whole sermon in itself. But here are the Pharisees who are proud, who on the outside they had cleaned up their house. But on the inside they were not regenerated by the Spirit because of their rejection of Jesus. And you can kind of clean yourself up on the outside and make yourself more presentable before men. But unless you are born again from above and regenerated on the inside, it doesn't mean anything. And when you hear the truth and you reject the truth, your second state becomes worse than the first. Why? Because you've hardened your heart towards God Almighty, and it becomes even more difficult to believe. But if you are here today and you're unsure of your salvation, if you will admit your state, that you're a sinner, unable to save yourself, and come to Christ and put your faith where he put your sin on the cross and ask him to forgive you and to change you and to make you a new person, he'll do it in an instance. Now, our Father, I thank you that we get the chance to study the prophet Jonah. Help us, we pray, in the days ahead to pay close attention to what this book says. We pray that it will become a part of our life, not so that we'll become more intelligent sinners, but more like your son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the authority that you placed on this book through your quotation of it. Help someone today who is unsure of their salvation to call upon you to say, Lord Jesus, save me. And help us when we go out this week with your word that is alive not to be ashamed, to go with the authority of heaven, knowing that it is a penetrating book that pierces the heart like no other word that man can hear. And thank you that your word never returns void without you accomplishing the purpose for which you've sent it. We bless your name for that reason. Amen. Jesus himself noted Jonah was a prophet who spent three days in the great fish. If you would like to listen again to today's message, use the Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy app, available for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling us 
at 877-787-7478 and asking for program JNH1. Perhaps you have a question you would like to ask Pastor Brogy personally. You can do that Tuesdays between 11 and noon Eastern during his live call-in program, The Bible Line. Listen to The Bible Line online at wagp.net. Tomorrow we'll continue our series in the book of Jonah. Join us then as we search the scriptures.